You're listening to sermon audio from King's Cross Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information about King's Cross Church, you can visit us online at kingscrossraleigh.com. Good morning. It was an interesting morning with nearly all of our technology not working at the same time, so um, I'm glad uh, that that we can make it work and uh, that God still speaks even if we don't have all the microphones. Um, as Chad mentioned, my name's Micah. Um, most Sundays I'm up here leading worship, uh, but uh, Chad was gracious enough to give me the opportunity to preach. And I do want to publicly thank him as he jumbled the schedule around a little bit to allow me to be here to preach on a Sunday that my parents are in town, all the way from Ohio. Um, it's a, a great privilege to be able to do that because uh, God has used many things in my life to, to draw me to himself and to teach, teach me about him, but none have been more instrumental than my parents. So um, I'm thankful for them, and uh, it's a real honor to be able to, to stand here and, and preach in their presence. I feel like it should be reversed, <laughs> but um, it's a great joy, and, and thank you, Chad, for making that happen. Um, this sermon today is going to be maybe a little bit different if you've been with us as we've been going through the book of Acts. Um, we have been walking through, we've made it through uh, about partway through chapter 5 so far, uh, but today we're going to pause a little bit, and Chad asked me to uh, kind of take a moment to reflect back on this early group of followers of Jesus and reflect on what it is that they are doing during this time, what it is that they are, uh, as we read, devoting themselves to, and what that could maybe mean for us today. Uh, So not going to quite be going through a set passage, a little bit more conceptual, um, but we're definitely going to be using a lot of the scriptures today. So if you have a Bible, have it open. Uh, I'll have it up on the screen if you don't. Um, But we want to just really consider uh, what the change was that was happening in these early believers. This was a, a monumental moment that, if you think about it, changed the course of history. Um, And so we want to reflect on that and see what that means for us today. Um, Most of the time when you hear this uh, passage read, or if you've ever heard someone talk about it, they like to refer to this as the early church. Um, But I'm going to argue that more accurately, we would want to describe it as a Jewish sect. Um, we see early on in the book of Acts that the, these new followers of Jesus are continuing in their Jewish relig- religious practices. Um, they're going to the temple, as we saw in chapter 3. They're continuing their, the Jewish hours of prayer. Um, in the, throughout the whole book of Acts, we see that they're still keeping some of the Jewish food laws. Uh, Paul, at the end, is doing Nazarite vows, which are Jewish purification rituals. Um, they were still part of the Jewish culture and following the Jewish religious practices. Um, We've seen in Peter's sermons that a big focus on is that he is seeing this moment as a restoration of the whole house of Israel. I think in their minds, they are seeing this as 
not necessarily a new religion that has started at this moment, but rather a just straight continuation of the Jewish religion that has now been fulfilled in Jesus the Messiah. We'll see this next week, but the Jewish leaders of the time saw the disciples as just another Jewish sect that some Messiah comes and says, I'm the Messiah, and they follow after him, and then he dies and it goes away. They, they were seeing them as part of the Jewish community still. Now, because eventually we know this movement does lead to a new religion, what we would call Christianity today, I think it's fine for us to reflect back and call this the beginning of the church. But it's important for us to remember that I don't think what we think of now today as Christianity is what was in the minds of these early believers at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And it's important because this is what the whole book of Acts, and and in honesty, the whole New Testament, is really about. They are trying to determine which, if any, of these Jewish religious practices do these new non-Jewish followers of Jesus need to keep. Or conversely, which of these Jewish practices for Jewish followers of Jesus do they need to continue doing? The whole New Testament is full of this tension. Acts is full of this tension. We see in Acts chapter 10, Peter is still doing the Jewish food laws, and God has to send a dream to him to say, here's some pigs, rise up, kill, and eat, which, to which we say, thank you, Lord Jesus. Uh, in Acts 15, the, the council comes together for this very purpose to determine, do these new non-Jewish followers have to be circumcised? Do they have to follow all the religious practices to, to become part of this people of, of following Jesus? Uh, I mentioned Acts 21. Paul comes back to Jerusalem after his missionary journeys, and to show that he is still a Jew, a good Jew, he does the Nazarite vows and goes into the temple. So they're, they're wrestling with this. What does this mean? And while we have grown kind of far beyond that and maybe Jewish and non-Jewish tensions don't really ring true as much for our daily lives, we still can create some similar problems. Uh, perhaps you can think, you've thought of Christianity and you've seen where sometimes we have falsely excluded people because they didn't keep the right religious practice. Um, When Chad preached this sermon uh, on this passage a few weeks ago in our small group, we were talking and someone shared that she had a neighbor who really wanted to come to church and was really excited to learn about Jesus, but she wouldn't come because she didn't own a dress. And in her mind, you can only go to church if if you're in a dress. she, She was being falsely excluded because she thought that the religious practice was more important. Uh, We can also falsely include people based off of religious practices. They do all the right things. They follow the practices to a T, how we think it should be done. Yet, really, they are far from God, and they live nothing like Jesus. I think this is important for us to pause here and look at what's going on in Acts chapter 2, because actually what happens is we're asking the wrong questions. It's not about religious practice. That's not when the Holy Spirit comes. He did not immediately transform the Jewish practices. They continued to do what they were doing as Jews. 
So the Holy Spirit, that was not his goal in coming. That's not what they immediately turned to. Rather, what they did do is the Holy Spirit created a new humanity, which is what this community is a small picture of. And I think this is important for us because what it does is it gives us a good deal of freedom in terms of religious practices. We don't need to be King James-only people or wear dresses to come to church. We have much more freedom because the, the point is not to reform our religious practices. But it also gives a very strong weight to our community life, to our social interactions, because what the Spirit is doing is creating a new humanity, which extends to all of our lives and not just what we do in this building. And this is a major problem, I think, because often those inside the church tend to bicker, maybe a a light word for what actually happens, bicker over the rituals. And those outside of the church are critical of our community or lack thereof. Now, as Chad mentioned, there is no perfect church. And I think that's precisely why it's wrong to necessarily look at this as the early church. Because it's, it, 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 the, what Luke is doing is creating an image of a utopia, of a perfect humanity. It's not the church, but it's humanity. And I think that there are many signs within the scripture that can point to this. At the end of scripture in Revelation, what comes down from heaven? A city, not the Sistine Chapel. A perfect church does not come down, but a city comes down where humanity dwells with God. Again, at the end, God renews all of creation. God's in the business of creating a whole new way of life. On this passage, uh, a commentator, Luke Timothy Johnson, he says, Luke is communicating to his readers in vivid fashion that the gift of the Holy Spirit brought about a community which has realized the highest aspirations of human longing, unity, peace, joy, and the praise of God. That's what's happening here. What's happening is a new life was created by the way of Jesus and is now powered in us by the Holy Spirit. And I'm going to use these four devotions that we read of that these early believers devoted themselves to to walk through what this new humanity looks like. So number one, the Spirit helps us to see the way of Jesus in the apostles' teachings. Now, this is an interesting language that's used here, apostles' teachings. Why not just say, they devoted themselves to the scriptures. Why to the apostles' teachings? And it's because the apostles are actually now reading and teaching the scriptures in a new way. Now, remember, these are scriptures that they have known their entire lives. And yet when Jesus comes, they didn't really get it. Perhaps we could forgive the disciples who were fishermen and common folk, But I think Paul is the best example of this. If you're not familiar with him, the Apostle Paul was the creme de la creme of of the Jewish people. He went to school with the best teachers on the on the Old Testament scriptures. He did everything right. He kept the law perfectly. And yet his reading of scripture at first led him to persecute the early believers. 
not to see Jesus for who he is, but to persecute them for their beliefs. So what happens? Something happens where all of a sudden these scriptures that Paul knew so well inside and out, he's reading them in a new way. And I'm going to take some time this morning to reflect back on Luke chapter 24. So if you want to go ahead and open up to Luke 24, and uh, I'm going to start in verse 25, and we're going to see how this came about and what this means that they're reading Scripture in a new way. So just to set the scene, Luke chapter 24, uh, Jesus has been crucified, he's been buried, and he has resurrected. And Luke gives us this amazing scene where there are these two disciples. These are people who had followed Jesus while he was on earth, listened to his teachings. They're walking down the road, and Jesus appears to them. And starting in verse 25, Jesus says to them, How foolish you are and how slow to believe in all the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. And then I'm going to jump down just a bit to uh, verse 44. Jesus goes into the house with them, and he eats with them, and then um, they recognize who he is, and then now these disciples go back to the other followers of Jesus, and they are reporting what happened. So in verse 44, it says, He told them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, This is what was written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day, and repentance and forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. So, we have to understand that having the Bible is just not a matter of having this text in front of us. What, is, what matters is what does this text actually mean? Perhaps you've read the, through the Bible and you're like, what, what does this even mean? There are some confusing parts in there. And it's important to know that meaning is found in reference. Um, to, to, to it, words, whatever the words are, their meaning are found in what they are actually referring to. To kind of uh, give an example of this, perhaps you've walked in on the middle of a conversation and you've heard something and you're like, what did you just say? And it sounded crazy or it sounded awful or it sounded totally absurd. But to them, those who were in the conversation from the beginning, it made total sense, Right? Because they knew what they were referring to. You coming in late have no idea what the reference is, and the meaning is totally lost on you, and you're, you're left trying to piece it together. So what has happened now is in Christ, Scripture now has a different or a new reference. This is stated very clearly in Luke 24 here, where Jesus says that all Scripture was written about him. In the Gospel of John, he states this also, Moses wrote about me. In other words, the Old Testament, these Old Testament scriptures refer to Jesus and not the other way around. What this means is we don't read the Old Testament scriptures to understand Jesus. Rather, we look to Jesus to understand the Old Testament scriptures. 
It seems like a small thing, but it's actually very important. And I would go so far as to say, the scriptures say that by Jesus, all things were created for him and through him. Therefore, Jesus is actually the reference point for all of history. Everything past, present, future is, understand, is to be understood in reference to Jesus. That means nothing that happens in our life makes sense, true sense, unless is in reference to Jesus. That's why things that happened on Thursday, people refer to it as senseless. Because without Jesus, it makes no sense why someone would act in violence like that, why people would die innocently. Now, what we have to remember, too, is that the primary text that these early believers had to understand who Jesus was is what we call our Old Testament. And I wonder if we could say the same thing about ourselves. These disciples are ones who walked with Jesus. They heard him teach. They, they read the scriptures. They knew it inside and out. They were with him for three years. And yet it took Jesus opening the scriptures to show them something new. And what he showed them is actually very specific. It's, it's not just Jesus, but it's his sufferings the necessity of his sufferings. In both of the scenes that I read, Jesus spoke of his, the need for the Messiah to suffer. Now, these first disciples, they have no problem with Jesus being born of a virgin. Pretty crazy. They had no problem with him doing miracles. They really had no problem with him claiming to be man and God. In fact, the, the Jews understood this. This is why they crucified him for being blasphemous. They knew what he was saying. They understood that. They didn't really have a problem with that. But what did they have a problem with? They had a problem with him suffering, with him going to the cross. Jesus was followed closely by his disciples all the way through until the cross. That's the part that they did not understand. They did not understand that it is suffering that leads to glory. It's death that leads to life. This is what he says. It was necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things to enter into his glory. This is a new way that has been opened to us, a new reference by which we understand the scriptures. Now, we can read the Bible in many different ways. You can read it as history. You can read it as moral teachings. You can uh, read it as philosophy. And there's not any problem with those. In fact, many of those ways are very helpful for us. But there's only one way to read it in which it forms this new humanity. And it is through the lens or through the key of Christ and his sufferings. This means that when we read the scriptures, everything must be made sense of in light of Jesus' sufferings. And I think Peter shows this clearly in his first three sermons that we've gone through so far in Acts. So I'm going to just real briefly recap a few sections from Peter's first sermons to where we can see what this in action, the way that the disciples are now reading the scriptures and understanding it. Uh, I'll have these up on the screen uh, so you don't necessarily need to flip there, but the, Peter's first sermon in Acts 2 I'll start in verse 23 and, and 24. 
Peter says, Though he was delivered up according to God's determined plan and foreknowledge, you used lawless people to nail him to a cross and to kill him. But God raised him up, ending the pains of death, because it was possible for him, it was not possible for him to be held by death. So here we see crucifixion, but resurrection. Death that led to life. And where did he get this from? He actually got it from the Psalms. We see there in the, in the next bit, in uh, uh, 26 through 28, he says, I saw the Lord before me because he sat at my right hand. I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart is glad. My tongue rejoices. Moreover, my flesh will rest in hope. Listen, he, because he will not abandon me in Hades. Hades is the place of the dead. He's in there. He's dead, but he will not abandon me there or allow the Holy One to see decay. He has revealed to me the path of life and filled me with gladness in your presence. Death to life. He's reading the Psalms and picking up. This is what, this is what David was writing about. He was writing about Jesus, the way of Jesus, of death leading to life. Uh, in Acts 3, in his next sermon, uh, verses 18 and 20, He says, in this way, God fulfilled what was predicted through all the prophets, that his Messiah would suffer. Therefore, repent and turn back so that your sins may be wiped out and that seasons of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord. Again, this is what all the prophets wrote about. So now Psalms, prophets, they are all writing about these things, that he must die so that seasons of refreshing may come, death to life. In Acts 4, Um, In front of the Sanhedrin, his last sermon we'll look at here, uh, verses 10 through 12. He says, Let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, Nazareth, whom you crucified and whom God raised from the dead, that this man is standing here before you healthy. This Jesus is the stone rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. So again, crucifixion, new life, death, life. And he pulls this again from the Psalms. The stone rejected now becomes the cornerstone. These are passages that reading prior to Christ's coming, they, this is not what they would have understood them to, met, to meet. This is a new meaning that they are seeing throughout all the scriptures. And we do the same. We read all the scriptures in light of this new way of Jesus that it is suffering that leads to glory, death that leads to life. So it's one thing to see this in the scriptures, but we also need more than that. We need to learn this way. And this is what brings us to the second devotion. The Spirit helps us learn this way of Jesus in the breaking of bread. Now, the breaking of bread, um, this specific language, is used only one other time in all of scripture, and it's uh, in Luke 24. (laughs) Funny enough. And in Luke 24, I, if you remember, I kind of skipped the middle section of that for a reason because I'm going to go back there and we're going to focus on this breaking of bread. Uh, let me read for us Luke 24, verses 28 through 35. So after Jesus had told these disciples and opened up their minds to say that the scriptures point to my suffering that leads to glory, They came near the village where they were going, and they gave the impression that he was going to go further. But they urged him to stay with us because it's almost evening and the day was almost over. 
So he was at, uh, he was reclined at table with them, and he took the bread, blessed it, broke it, and gave it to them. Then their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us when he was talking to us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? He opened the scriptures to them. He showed them this new way of Jesus, but it wasn't until the breaking of bread that they recognized who he was. We have to see in the scriptures, but we also have to learn within us who, this new way of Jesus. So in the breaking of bread, why in the breaking of bread? Because it's an acting within us, the way of Jesus, the means by which we participate in this way of Jesus, and we actually learn this way of Jesus. Jesus is revealed to us in the breaking of bread, in the taking of the Lord's table. But we also know that he disappeared after this. As soon as they recognize him, he disappeared. Why does he disappear? Because in the breaking of bread, Jesus is not only revealed to us, but he is realized in us, meaning we are now to become the body of Jesus and to live out this way of Jesus, this suffering to glory, this death to life. The breaking of bread becomes the pattern for our lives. Augustine, St. Augustine, a early church uh, theologian, has a beautiful quote where he says, you are the body of Christ. You are to be taken. You are to be blessed, broken, and given, that you may, by the means of grace and the vehicle of eternal love, Behold what you are and become what we receive. And this is the, the fourfold uh, pattern that we receive and is realized in us in, in the participation of the breaking of bread. This is the progression. Take, bless, break, give. And I wanted to just walk through a quick example of this, hopefully something that's familiar to many of you. Um, for as long as I can remember, once we first had kids, my wife and I, before bed each night, we sing Psalm 23 to our children. Uh, it's, a, it's a familiar psalm. Uh, many of you probably know it. Um, and as I was reflecting on it, um, I realized that this pattern is found very clearly for us and beautifully for us in Psalm 23. So hopefully this serves as a little bit of an example of what I mean by, one, reading the scriptures in light of this way of Jesus, and also this idea of, of it becoming who we are. So um, I'm going to, I have it up on the screen as well, but I'm going to go back to Psalm 23 and just read through this, through this, I, this lens of take, bless, break, and give. So the psalm starts out, the Lord is my shepherd. And already we see here is our take. One, God has taken us as sheep and, and we have taken on God as our shepherd. We are taken by God as our good shepherd. And then he says, I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right path for his namesake. And this is blessing, is it not? We're in green pastures. We have everything we need, quiet waters, right paths. We've been taken and we've been blessed. But notice a, a strange turn where, where God is a good shepherd. We're in green pastures, quiet waters, 
And then it says, even when I go through the darkest valley. Now, it's a little bit of an unfortunate translation in my opinion. Uh, the, I think the words are stronger there, and the other translations will say, even, even though I must go through the darkest valley, even though I shall go through the shadow of death. And this is breaking. The point is that breaking comes after blessing. Sometimes we get this totally backwards. We think that by giving of ourselves, we will receive blessing. But no, if you have God as your good shepherd, you are already blessed. And he blesses you precisely so that you will be broken. You go through the valley of the shadow of death, through the darkest valley. But praise be to God that I fear no danger because you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. He goes through the breaking with us. He doesn't leave us alone. And why does he do this? Why do we have to go through the darkest valley? It says he leads me along the right path. Why is he leading me through a dark valley? That makes no sense. Because at the end of the valley is something even better. He says, you prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. And what does this mean? If God has prepared a table for you in the presence of your enemies, it means that you are to serve that food to your enemies. You are to invite your enemies to the table that God has prepared for you, that you may give to them. And then what happens? We become. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen anyone anoint a sheep's head with oil or give the sheep a cup. He says, goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. I don't have sheep in my house. You see what happened? We go through the darkest valley, through suffering, through death. We give the blessing that God has blessed us with, and we go from sheep to sons. We go from sheep to children. We are in the house of God now. We're not in the green pastures just nibbling on grass. We're at a table of the Lord with our cups overflowing, dwelling in his house forever. And the shepherd who was good, now that goodness is in us. Goodness and mercy, they follow me. They go wherever I go because it has become me. I have, I have become what the good shepherd is. This is the pattern. This is the way of Jesus that we are to live. Now, I want to apply that to how we participate in what we call the Lord's Supper, communion, today. We want to take this pattern and, and consider it because I think it's incredibly instructive for us in many ways. We, to take, participate in this table, we have to follow this same pattern. Take. To participate in this table, first you must be taken by God, and you have to take God on as your shepherd. It makes no sense to, to participate in this table if God is not your good shepherd. Blessed. God is a good shepherd. And if he is your shepherd, you are blessed. You are blessed with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You are blessed with gifts to serve the body. Blessing is not necessarily just material in this sense. You are blessed coming to this table if he is your good shepherd. But remember, we have to break. We have to be broken. You cannot skip this step. 
just like Jesus, we have to go through the valley of the shadow of death to come to this table. Anecdotally, I think this is what, at least in part, was happening last week in the story of Ananias and Sapphira. They were attempting to participate in the community of God to say that they were blessed without really being broken. And this is the only way to life. You cannot have life without being broken. You can't pretend. You have to be broken. Finally, give. The table is a communal place. Despite the uh, great adage from a favorite show of mine, Parks and Recreation, the table is not treat yourself. The table is to serve others, to give to others. I think we are in danger of overplaying the personal aspect of the Lord's table. Certainly we must look inward before we partake in in the table. But it is just as dangerous, if not more so, to partake of the table indifferent to the needs of those around us. You cannot partake of the table as one who takes but never gives, as one who is blessed but is never broken. If you think of it as a a real table, at your dining room table at home, when people sit around it, everyone is equal. Everyone has access to the same food. When we participate in this table, we have to do that in the same way. If there are those in our body around us who are suffering and without things that they need, basic necessities, and we are coming to the table joyfully, shame on us. We must not be indifferent to the needs of those around us when we participate in the table. Now, How then do we ensure that we are coming to the table in the right way? By our next devotion, by living in fellowship. The Spirit helps us live this way of Jesus through fellowship. The idea of fellowship, I believe, in this passage is explained or expounded upon in the the phrase of they had everything in common. Uh, Fellowship, I think, is better understood as, as more of an idea of sharing Um, just a brief survey of how this word is used throughout the scriptures because it's important because we use this word fellowship in a variety of ways today and we bring our understanding then to the text. So I think I have it up on the screen here. The way that this word fellowship is used throughout the scriptures, 17 times it's used. Nine of those times it describes the spiritual communion that the Christian now shares with God through the Holy Spirit. Five of those times, it just describes a financial gift that is given to a ministry effort. And three of those times, including here, is described as fellowship among a group of Christians. I think if we take those pieces, my best attempt to redefine fellowship is to say that fellowship is an intimate participation in the life of those at the opposite end of the spectrum through the sharing of your resources. This participation is two ways. Those who have the resources, they participate so fully with those who don't have resources so that those who don't have can now participate in the resources that they don't have. I think this is to kind of give an example of this. Paul uses the same logic in 2 Corinthians where he says, Jesus 
though he was rich, became poor, that through his poverty we might become rich. There's two, Jesus participated so much with our poverty that our poverty gets, turns into richness. Now, as I mentioned, this participation is with those at the opposite end of the spectrum. Rich and poor is a very clear spectrum that we can see. And I think that's why uh, in the early church that the giving of money and resources is kind of the natural expression of that. It's the easiest way to see what's going on. But I think that we can challenge ourselves a bit to think of what other spectrums are there in our lives where we have resources that we can give to those at the other end. Um, Perhaps this is something you can do in your small groups this week uh, to think through these. I just came up with a few. But perhaps uh, your empty nesters. Opposite end of the spectrum is a young single mom who's struggling to keep up with her kids. You have resources. You have time and energy to participate with her and so relieve her that she can enjoy uh, freedom. Uh, Perhaps you're a young family and there are singles who are looking for a family who just want to have a meal around a, a nice cooked meal around a table. Uh, Perhaps you're young and you can visit with the elderly. Uh, Perhaps you're a bit older and you're an adult and you can invest in a child or a teen. Uh, Perhaps you've been a a follower of Jesus for a very long time and there's someone who's a new believer that you can share your resources with. Perhaps you're healthy and you can visit with the sick and those who can't get out. There are so many spectrums in our lives that we can look to the opposite end to break ourselves and give of the blessing that God has given us so that we can pull them into this life of blessedness. Now, if this all sounds terrible and challenging to you, that's the point. Being broken is painful, and we need help to persevere. Our last point, the Spirit helps us persevere in the way of Jesus through prayer. These early believers in the one prayer that we have recorded so far uh, in our journey through Acts, they pray for boldness to live this way of Jesus. They were being persecuted and they pray for boldness. Interestingly, if you read through all of the prayers that the Apostle Paul records in his letters to the churches, There's one thing that is found in every single prayer. He prays for boldness to speak the truth about Jesus. Now, if the Apostle Paul needs to pray for boldness, I would submit that we do as well. It's challenging to live this way. It's challenging to know that it's suffering and brokenness and death that leads to life and glory. And we need to pray that God would give us boldness to walk in this way, to not shy back to not be satisfied with green pastures, but to remember that there is a house for us. Finally, um, prayer helps us to be faithful to this way of Jesus all the way to the end. Um, In Luke 18, chapter 18, uh, when we did our our, uh, sermon series on the parables, uh, Aaron actually preached through this parable. Uh, It was the parable of the widow who was uh, needing justice 
and she wasn't getting it. And so she went to the judge of the land again and again and again, saying, give me justice, give me justice. And eventually the judge said, ah, right, fine, just get off my back. I don't want to deal with you anymore. You can have your justice. And that's what Jesus said, that's prayer. Interesting. I think at least in a community sense, we need to, one, it shows we need to persist in prayer, and that it's also about a petition. We're asking God for something. But what happens at the end of that parable is interesting. It gives this strange phrase where Jesus says, now, when the Son of Man returns, will he find faith on the earth? That's his concluding point on prayer. And I think if we think about it, it's very instructive. What it means is that when we stop praying to, what we stop praying to God about, we will stop believing in God for. And what we stop believing in God for, we will stop doing altogether. If we have stopped praying to God for boldness, that means we don't believe God can give us boldness and we won't be bold. We need to persist in prayer to keep believing in God that he can do these things because breaking is painful, giving is difficult. But we believe, God, that through the scriptures, through the remembering of breaking of bread, through fellowship with one another, that this is the way of Jesus. This is the way of life. Suffering leads to glory. Death leads to life. Now, it's great that all of these things we get to participate in this morning. We get to hear teaching from these scriptures. We get to break bread. We get to pray. We've had many times of prayer this morning. And we get to fellowship with one another. All of these are instructive for what we do here But this is just the training ground for the new humanity that God is building through these early believers. Let us not get so caught up on the ritual and doing it the right way that we forget that the Spirit has come to create in us a new humanity where all of us together are broken and give and share that many may come to sit at the table of God in His house where goodness and mercy follow us all the days of our life. Let's pray. God, we praise you and thank you that you have revealed to us the way of Jesus. God, that you have not left us in the dark, but you have given meaning and purpose and sense to everything in this world. God, we pray that as we seek to become what we behold, that you would give us boldness to live a life that is broken, to give a life, live a life that is given for the sake of others, just as Christ has done that for us. He has given himself for the sins of the world. What can we hold back from those in our presence? What can we hold back from those in our community? God, may we be willing to break and give of any resource we have, knowing that you have blessed us for this very purpose. And it's not just so that we may be broken, that we may suffer, 
that we may die, but it's because through that, you give us the life that you've always wanted us to have, a life with you at your table, in your house, where there's nothing but goodness. God, we long for that day. Help us to live in a way that shows our hope is secure in that future. We love you, and we ask this all in Jesus' name.